Psalm 123, a song of ascent. I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sit enthroned in heaven. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a female slave look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. Have mercy on us, Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured no end of contempt. We have endured no end of ridicule from the arrogant, of contempt from the proud. For Psalm 124, a song of ascents of David, I'll read verse 1, and then if we could all please read from verse 2 to the end of the psalm. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, If the Lord had not been on our side when people attacked us, they would have swallowed us alive when their anger flared against us. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to the Lord, who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Psalm 125, a song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken but endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, for then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. Lord, do good to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. But those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish with the evildoers. Peace be on Israel. Let's pray. Loving Father, it's a huge privilege to be on the road, traveling to glory with you alongside us. But it's a long road, sometimes a weary road, and we need your help. So please encourage us through the words of these psalms. For Jesus' sake. Amen. We stagger onward, rejoicing. Words that I've long loved from the poet W.H. Auden. We stagger onward, rejoicing. And those are words I've often had in mind, actually, as I've been looking, spending a lot of time looking at these remarkable so-called songs of ascent, they're songs, psalms that it seems pilgrims said, maybe even sang, as they went up to Jerusalem, three times a year probably, for the great festivals of the Jewish faith. And these are psalms that are much loved of Christians because we too are on a pilgrimage heading to the heavenly Jerusalem. How do you find the journey? What do you think the journey should be like? 
maybe someone looking from outside in. You haven't begun the journey yet. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Or you're just starting out or you've been going for a long time. What is the journey like? What are your expectations? I was speaking just 10 days ago or so in America and I was preaching in a passage which was quite challenging and I spoke of the fact that the Christian life involves many sacrifices, there were many challenges, there will be suffering that we can all expect. It seemed to me just pretty ordinary stuff, the kind of thing that the Bible often says, the kind of things I often speak, and I was simply expanding what was there. But what was very striking was how many people came up to me afterwards and said, oh, we needed to hear that. We don't often hear that. I think maybe there's something about the American psyche that can-do optimism that sees opportunities rather than challenges. Maybe something about the American context, at least in some parts of America, where Christians can feel as if they are the mainstream. Very different in this country, I suspect. Partly to do because of the, the British psyche. Sees all the challenges and none of the opportunities. Or maybe very conscious that those who take the Bible seriously and Jesus Christ seriously are in a minority. And so I felt the Americans, and maybe whether you, whatever your nationality, you might have an instinct towards that way of thinking, that the Christian life is full of joy. Sometimes we need to be reminded, at times, we will stagger. And all we can do is just put one foot ahead of the other. Or maybe your mindset, whether your nationality or not, is, is more British. You're very conscious of the staggering. You stumble, stagger, even stall altogether. And perhaps you need to be reminded that the Christian life is one of joy because God is with us. And these Psalms reflect both those realities. The reality of staggering sometimes, it's tough. And yet the wonderful fact that God is with us and there is joy on the road. Each week we're looking at three of these Psalms of Ascent. There are 15 of them. And it's been pointed out, and I think there's something in this, that they come in triplets. It seems that the first one in each little triplet speaks of acute distress. The second one, divine assistance. The third, complete security with a focus on Jerusalem, the destination, the home. And we saw something of that last week. We're going to see it again this week. Acute distress, that's there in Psalm 123, was reflected in the prayers that David prayed that very much evoked the atmosphere of Psalm 123. Lord, we've endured no end of contempt, no end of ridicule from the arrogant. But then the stress in 124, divine assistance. If the Lord had not been on our side, terrible things would have happened, but he has been on our side. Verse 8, our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And then the third in the series, complete security. 125, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. And you notice a kind of progression, we might say almost an ascent within the triplet from distress to a focus on divine assistance to reassurance of complete security. Each 
of the triplets is like a mini version of the whole series, which starts, we saw last week, Psalm 120, with misery in Meshach, a long way from home, and ends, 134, with joy in Jerusalem, home, sweet home. You might even say that the whole series, these 15 Psalms, are like a mini version of the Psalter, which takes us on a journey from lament, Psalm 3, to praise, Psalm 150. That's over, over neat, but there's a sense in which the Psalms are taking us from the realities of the tough, tough world we're in to the glory that is to come. But while there are differences, and I've given you a sense of that development within the series, within the triplet, there are also real similarities between each of these Psalms. Each features characteristics and indeed characters that appear throughout the Psalter. There are the enemies. The Christian life is lived in the context of enmity. There are those forces that are out to get us. Enemies. But then there's God, who is with the pilgrim and for the pilgrim. And then, of course, there's the pilgrim, him or herself, Christian people on the journey. And we're going to look at those themes covering all three Psalms at the same time. First of all, the enemy, who does indeed appear in every, every psalm. Some of you men, I think, are reading The Pilgrim's Progress at the moment, John Bunyan's great, uh, great book. And Bunyan says, our march to Zion is through the wilderness of the world. In other words, it's through very difficult terrain. When we face many dangers, like Frodo and his friends in Lord of the Rings, traveling through enemy territory. And here we find in these psalms, enemies intent on demeaning and destroying and dominating the people of God. Demeaning, that's Psalm 123. We've endured, verse 3, no end of contempt. We've endured no end of ridicule from the arrogant, of contempt from the proud. It was Augustine who said that the world is divided between mockers and praisers. Those who mock God and those who praise Him and worship Him. And the mockers are introduced in the very first psalm, Psalm 1, verse 1. There are those who mock. And they keep reappearing throughout the Psalter. Those who scorn God and scorn those who seek to serve Him. Jesus, of course, was demeaned. You think of those soldiers who rammed a crown of thorns on His head and thrust a staff in his right hand as if he was some kind of king. But they didn't believe a word of it. They laughed at the very thought that this weak, pathetic individual who they're about to nail to a cross is kingly. And they mocked him with the title, King of the Jews. He saved others. Can't save himself. And if people mocked Jesus... We can be sure if we seek to follow him, they will mock us. When I was converted at 18, full of joy, the gospel was amazing. And then almost immediately, a chaplain in my school started saying, you believe that? Do you really? You believe Jesus is the only way to God? <laughs> you believe God will judge people? Well, he mocked. Think of a relative. Oh, you'll soon grow out of it. 
Everyone does, this childish faith you've got. Or a friend who was offended that I was spending time with that Christian Union gang. What are you doing with that lot? And if you haven't faced mockery, expect it to come. You, one of those Bible bashers. You go to that church, don't they believe demeaning? Richard Dawkins, the Oxford professor, said once a number of years ago, Christians should be treated to a display of naked contempt. Strong language, isn't it? But that's not the English way. And actually, it's not normally his way. The English way is more a kind of raised eyebrow. A look between two people, as you've just said something. It doesn't speak loudly, but nonetheless, it excludes. Oh, we could have been friends, it kind of says, but doesn't say, it just acts on. We could have been friends if you hadn't believed all that stuff. I used to think you were quite intelligent, says the look. But now there's a kind of thinly disguised scorn. Someone of intelligence believing that? And promotion, where you just get passed over. And it wounds. The enemy demeans, Psalm 123. The enemy seeks to destroy, Psalm 124. Notice how the images are piled on. This is what the enemy is seeking to do. Verse 2, they're attacking. People attacked us. And they're intent on destruction. Verse 3, they would have swallowed us alive. Think of one of those images from the blue planet. Or David Attenborough is such a calming voice, isn't he? And so often the calm voice doesn't quite match with the horrors that you're watching. As that lovely seal is swimming innocently and then suddenly a killer whale gobbles it up. And that's what the enemy is out to do to you, says the psalmist. Verse 4, the flood would have engulfed us. You think of those tsunamis that swept through the land, gobbling up everything, villages, towns, communities, everything, engulfed. And verse 7, the fowler's snare. It might be a bird caught by the wire that's trapped it, utterly helpless, and the more it tries to escape, the more the wire tightens, waiting for the fowler to come and just wring its neck. That's what the enemies are out to do, says the psalmist, total destruction. And we might think that is very extreme language. It doesn't fit our experience. But then you read the life of Jesus. Perfect goodness. And yet the world was utterly determined to destroy him. He must be killed. And so his enemies plotted and schemed. Even the crowd who just days before had said, Hosanna is he who comes in the name of the Lord, was shouting, crucify, crucify. It's not extreme language when you read the New Testament. It's not extreme language 
if you look at what's happening in other parts of the world. Did you know that 80% of those Christians who were killed for their faith last year were killed in Nigeria? Hundreds killed every month and hardly a word in the global media. Those Muslim militias are determined to snuff them out of whole communities and areas. It is a dangerous thing to go to church. You think, well, that's other parts of the world, but this language, it doesn't fit our experience of life. Well, it might not fit our experience, but the New Testament says, wake up, 1 Peter 5 verse 8, be alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And whether we realize it or not, we're engaged in a spiritual battle. And the devil would long to make us doubt God, disobey God, and he'll do it in subtle ways. Of course, one of the most subtle ways is not to reveal himself. So we're not on our guard. Eugene Peterson, the, the, the writer, who died a few years ago, went to donate blood on one occasion, and the, the nice nurse asked him a question. Do you engage in hazardous work? It's one of the questions on the form. And he replied, yes. She looked up. And notice his clerical collar. <laughs> he smiled, and she said, I don't mean that kind of dangerous. <laughs> but actually, Christian living is dangerous work. There's an enemy out to demean, out to destroy, out to dominate Psalm 125. Verse 3, the scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous. Why does the psalmist have to say that? Because at the moment, the scepter of the wicked, the symbol of the wicked's authority, does stand over the land allotted to the righteous. Quite possibly words written at the time of the exile, when the Babylonians ruled over Judah and the people of Judah are miles away in Babylon and the enemies of God seem to reign supreme. Is not this the world we live in? Where the mockers are in charge. Again, David's prayer just summed it up so well. In the world of the media, in education, politics, maybe your workplace, sadly, sometimes even the church, it seems that those who don't fear God, those who mock those who take the Bible seriously, they're in charge. Of course, they're magnificent and glorious exceptions. But we can feel like minorities. We can feel weird for worshipping the God who made us. Now, in that kind of context, there's a real danger. Verse 3, the scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, for then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. And the psalmist is saying, the great danger is when the wicked dominate, the righteous might end up joining the side of the wicked. There's just too much pressure to stand against. If you can't beat them, join them. Just give up and fit in. And then all the, the struggles disappear. Here are the challenges. Here is the enemy out to demean, to destroy, 
to dominate. But let's not just think of the enemies. Of course, we mustn't ignore them. If we close our eyes to the enemies and pretend they're not there, we'll be unprepared for the challenges on the journey. It's important we face reality, but if we only look at the enemies, we'll give up. We'll soon be overwhelmed. And so the the Psalms direct our focus next to God. And what a great God He is. The God who's above us, who's alongside us, who's around us. Above us, Psalm 123. I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sit enthroned in heaven. I think of the the great vision of Revelation chapter 4. After that I looked, and there before me was a throne in heaven, and someone sitting on it. And that's the, start, that's the, the verse that first came to mind. Can you believe it's four years ago since we went into lockdown, just, just under four years ago? And the world felt insecure and unstable, a bit scary, didn't it? And I immediately thought of Revelation 4, which is the first passage I preached on the Sunday after lockdown. Because it feels as if everything's out of control. And the, John is shown a vision. There is a throne in heaven. It's not empty. There's someone sitting on it. And here is the psalmist lifting up his eyes to you who sits enthroned in heaven. God is in charge. The God who made the world and rules the world. He's above us. And one, two, four, he's alongside us. He's not a distant God. He's with us on the journey. You will never walk alone. Verse 1, if the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side when people attacked us, well, they would have swallowed us alive. We'd have had no hope. They were out to get us. But, of course, the Lord was on our side. And so praise be to the Lord, who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We've escaped like a bird from the fowler's snare. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. There's a remarkable piece of antiquity in the British Museum, the so-called Sennacherib Cylinder. Sennacherib was the leader of the Assyrians, and the the story is told in Two Kings and Isaiah as well. Sennacherib and the, the Assyrians completely surrounded the city of Jerusalem. It seemed impossible for the people of Judah to survive. And on this Sennacherib cylinder in the British Museum, you find the king, King Sennacherib, boasting that he shut up Hezekiah, the king of Judah, like a bird in a cage. He's in a trap, like a bird in a cage. But then remarkably, overnight, thousands of the Assyrian army died. We don't know what happened, some kind of plague perhaps. And then they disappeared. And maybe it's that that the psalmist has in mind when he writes verse 7, we've escaped like a bird from the fowler's snare. In fact, there are plenty of times in Israel's history that the psalmist could have been thinking of. Think of the Exodus, where it seems as if, as if the people of God were absolutely helpless slaves under this global superpower. And God delivered them. Now, when God is on our side, it doesn't mean that we won't be attacked. It's very important to know that. 
If the Lord had not been on our side, we, we wouldn't have escaped from any danger. That's not what he says. If the Lord had not been on our side, when the danger came, we wouldn't have been overwhelmed by it. But the dangers do come. There's a prosperity gospel out there that says, if you really trust in Jesus, then all will be well. Health and wealth will come your way. It's a, it's a wicked doctrine. Because if you're not healthy and not wealthy, whose fault is it? It's your fault for not really trusting in the Lord. And I think there'd be very few in this room who would fall for that kind of extreme teaching. But there's a subtle version of it, which goes very deep, that somehow thinks that if, if we pray enough, if we trust enough, then we'll always get the car park space <laughs> to talk about a trivial thing. And somehow the Lord will always ensure that in this life everything works out for us. And the Bible doesn't promise that. There are times when Christians may go through very deep waters, when enemies may surround us, when we are in the foulest snare. And maybe right now you feel overwhelmed maybe by, by the circumstances of your life, overwhelmed with grief, or loneliness, or depression. Family pressures, the marriage is really hard. The children are turning from you. You feel as if you're in the fowler's snare. Or maybe spiritual attack, the intensity of the opposition, or discouragement, or temptation. You think, I just can't cope anymore. And the Bible says Jesus is with you. I love 2 Corinthians 4. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Ultimately, he's with us. Above us, alongside us, around us. Psalm 125, verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken but endures forever. And you can think of the pilgrims approaching Jerusalem. What an impressive, amazing city it was, surrounded by those strong, solid walls, but also natural defenses, the mountains that still surround the city to this day. Verse 2, the psalmist writes, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. That's a picture of God's people. We couldn't be more secure. Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God, on the rock of ages founded. What can shake thy sure repose? With salvation's walls surrounded, thou mayst smile at all thy foes. God above, God alongside, God all around. And the psalmist in each psalm then brings us down to earth and we see the pilgrim responding in the face of enemies, conscious of God. How does the pilgrim respond? How should we respond? Well, verse, uh, Psalm 1, 2, 3, looking up, looking up in prayer. I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sit enthroned in heaven as the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master as the eyes of a female slave look to the hand of their mistress so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy it's a look of absolute dependence it's a focused look 
It's a persevering look. I'm not going to look away until you give me what I desperately need because I'm out of my depth here, Lord. Think of the dog hungry. It's feeding time. It's a remarkable stare, isn't it? And the dog, wherever the owner goes, the dog is looking because I need you, my owner. I need you to give me the food. It's extraordinary. They don't even blink, do they? And the psalmist is saying, I'm looking to you, Lord. I'm not looking away. I depend on you. I need you. Looking up in prayer. When you're at the end of your tether, remember, God is at the other end. Looking up in prayer. Looking back in remembrance. Psalm 124. That's what the psalmist is doing. In the midst of great troubles, looking back and remembering at times of tremendous pressure in the past. Praise be to the Lord, who's not let us be torn by their teeth. There have been times when, over the years, I've been tempted to despair. And always there have been times when I've settled in a particular mood... And I've kind of imagined that mood or that situation is how life will always be from then on. And it's impossible. I can't cope with it. I can't keep going. But of course the reality is that mood and that circumstance is not what continues for the rest of my life. And thankfully it's a little bit less easy to believe that lie now. Because time and time again, the Lord is delivered. The Lord's lifted my eyes to Him. The Lord's taken the situation away. And the danger is I'm so focused on this mood, this situation, I can despair. But the psalmist looks back and remembers. Remembers what God has done in Israel's history. And we can remember what God has done through Jesus Christ, who was crushed and killed and then raised. We can remember what he's done in our lives. Look up in prayer look back in remembrance, and then look forward with confidence. Psalm 125, verse 1, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken. And here's the promise, verse 3, the scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, because God has promised, Psalm 2, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill, and God's King Jesus reigns at the right hand of God. And one day, says the psalm, all his enemies will be crushed. And so the psalmist prays that God will fulfill his promises. Verse 4, Lord, do good to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart, but those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish with the evildoers. It's an absolute confidence that God will do what he's promised. And so, peace, peace be on Israel. Confidence that one day peace will descend and all in heaven and on earth will be well. And with that confidence, a sense of peace even in the here and now, in the midst of many challenges as we stagger onward, rejoicing through the night of doubt and sorrow, 
Onward goes the pilgrim band, singing songs of expectation, marching to the promised land. Onward, therefore, Christian pilgrims, onward with the cross, our aid. Bear its shame and fight its battle till we rest beneath its shade. Soon shall come the great awaking, soon the rending of the tomb, then the scattering of all shadows and the end of toil and gloom. Let me pray. Loving Father, thank you so much for these psalms. May we receive from them what we need. For some, that sense of reality, because all is well now, but prepare us for times ahead, which will be much harder. And for others in the midst of very hard times, lift our eyes to you. And may the words of these psalms become the longings, the desires, the expression of our heart. For Jesus' sake.